You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music tech, the founder of the Music Tectonics Conference, which is taking place October 24th to 26th in Santa Monica, California. Super excited to be back there on the beach. You know, at Tectonics, we talk about all types of music innovation. New ideas, new ways of listening, new ways of being creative, and new ways of making a living in music. Our guest this week is motivated by musical creativity, but does so working on the financial side of the business. He's worked with leading music industry professionals, including Grammy Award winners, platinum recording artists, and notable music industry executives in every genre, always with the utmost discretion and privacy. He's held executive roles in high-tech software and specialty finance firms, artificial intelligence engineering software, software development testing tools, and more. So he knows what he's talking about on the tech side of this, too. Alex is a strong and outspoken advocate for the rights of songwriters, producers, and artists, and the importance of those in the creative world being fairly compensated for their work. Alex Heike is the founder and CEO of Sound Royalties, and he established the company in 2014 after identifying the gaping need for fair funding options for musical professionals, which allowed creatives to retain their copyrights. Welcome to Music Tectonics, Alex. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Did I get, did I get it right? <laughs> did I get you, the bio right? <laughs> you made it sound a lot better than... Uh... <laughs> Then it feels sometimes. <laughs> oh, I know. Thank when you're in the you. we're in the when you're in the trenches, Alex, <laughs> you forget about Thanks. all the highs and and you think about the lows. But um, you know, let's let's kick off from the beginning. How did you get into music? Oh wow! Um, so as a kid, I just wanted to ride my bike and play music. I played half a dozen instruments, and that was that was my focus, much to my father's chagrin. <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, in college, I switched to high tech software and, and did other things. But eventually, I just made a conscious decision that I wanted to come back to, to music and dive back into the music world. I actually left in college because I felt that music was my first love, but it wasn't my first language. And mm. I can condition myself to play just about anything, but I don't feel like I can speak. And I've always been in awe of creatives who are actually you know, telling a story through a melody or through words and creating something that's never existed before about putting things together. And so I kind of left. And then, I, you know, I said, you know what? I, I love music. I want to be part of the industry. And I made the decision to come to the music industry. And I basically jumped off a cliff and decided to build an airplane on the way down. And that airplane was going to be a music company. Wow. Got it. it, it so, <laughs> so where do you start? You start by looking for a void. Um, and that's what I did. I, I understood tech and finance, not, not enough at the time about publishing and labels and distributors. And so I focused in those areas and, and saw a void on the business side of music in the finance area. Oh, we'll get into that in a little bit. I want to ask you first, just so that people get the overview right. If I, I like to use this question. If someone next to you on an airplane asks you what you do, how do you explain sound royalties to them? How long of a flight do we have? Like, is this <laughs> L.A. to San Francisco, or are we going to Hong Kong or something? <laughs> uh, you know, the way I like to explain it is, is we're on the first, I, you know, I don't want to say I'm just in the music industry because people think I'm up on stage and they should probably recognize me. So I, I say I'm on the business side of music, and that's what Sound Royalty is, is, is we're on the business side of the music industry. And we fund a lot of the music that you hear on the radio. 
You know, we're a finance company that empowers creatives to do what they do by providing financing. There's two types of, of ways to get money. Investors that want to own a piece of it and financial solutions where it's you're, you're paying a flat fixed amount or a finance fee for access to the capital. So we're a financial services company that provides financing to creatives, empowering them to do what they need to do to fund the stuff that we know and love. Perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that more, but I love for people to start off to just get that framework of sort of, okay, where are we? What are we talking about exactly? And then, you know, before you started Sound Royalties, I mentioned you, you were in high tech, AI engineering, specialty finance firms. Honestly, I didn't understand everything that I said in your, your bio, but how, how did you get from there to launching Sound Royalties? You just mentioned that you made a conscious choice and yep. that you looked for, for gaps where the need was, but maybe you could say just a little bit more about that because it's kind of crazy what you did. And, and you know, a lot of people, in music do it <laughs> yeah they either do it when they're young enough not to be too concerned about <laughs> where their career is going to yeah. go or you had some success already as a, as a professional um as an exec oh yeah um uh, tell us more about how you got from from there to here well, well i had success in the finance world and in high tech world and i knew i wanted to come to the music industry so the first thing to mention that plane you know if you're building an airplane as you come off the cliff before you hit the ground What's the quickest way to do it? Buy one. And so I came to the music industry, initially went to Nashville and, and visited with some private financial services companies that were serviced in the industry from there. Went to Charlotte, LA. I visited with all the entertainment bankers that I could get a hold of and said, I'm coming to the industry. What are you guys doing? What aren't you doing? Um, what, you know, who are the players? Who should I be looking at? The private companies. I said, you know, can we work together? Can we partner together? Can I buy you? And they were really welcoming and they're all open their doors. But after about 14 months, I realized that the entertainment industry and music business is made up of songwriters, artists, producers, labels, business managers, publishers, distributors. I'm not listing the private financial services companies because at the time they weren't considered part of it. They were either entertainment bankers who are still very re well respected and part of the industry, but the actual banks themselves, the big banks are not considered part of it. And then the private financial companies were considered to be the, the black sheep or the pawn shops of the industry because they were either buying and preying on those that were in desperate need, or they were providing usurious loans that were overextending people and then seizing the copyright in default. And that's that atmosphere is what created the pivot to say, you know what, I'm just going to create something. And that's what was born in the, the concept of sound royalties to create something that acted more like a bank, didn't want to own that house or that car when they give you a mortgage or a car loan and, and trying to figure out how to do that. And, and that was the birth of, of Sound Royalties and, and how we started heading down that path. Interesting. So you actually set out to try to buy something and there wasn't anything that you felt comfortable with. Yeah, there, there was some, a lot of companies out there, there was a fair amount, but not something that was accepted by the industry and part of the industry. Part of my goal was to be a, you know, part of something and to make a difference in something that I've been in awe of since as far as I can remember. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think, you know, a traditional fan would necessarily think about financing as it relates to music. You know, the only thing people maybe know is kind of like, you know, the, the same thing they know about the sports industry. It's like you get signed and you're set for life is maybe what the perspective is. And if you don't get yeah. signed, either you're unlucky or 
so, so you're you know there, there's there's not going to be a career or something like that. Now, of course, that shifted a lot with with uh, the growth of the indie sector. But I'm curious, you know, why is this type of financing that you provide at Sound Royalties important to artists, and why is it important to the music industry? Well, you just hit it with your analogy on sports right on the head. So let's let's back up on the industry a little bit and look back not even more than 10 years ago it was common that if you wanted to make it in the music industry you had if you were a songwriter you need to find a publisher that would sign you and take your works and go pitch them to artists to be recorded if you were an artist you had to find a label that would sign you and work with you and liked what you were doing and they would sign you based on hey i like this individual's talent i like their music i think they're going somewhere and they would fund trying to record things and get you on the radio because that was the pathway to success right as the world shifted to streaming and i didn't time it this way mm-hmm. it was happening as the idea and, and 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 the concept of sound royalties was being born and we were pioneering this new approach to provide financing to the music industry it was like putting lightning in a bottle or writing the hit song with the right sound at the right time because the industry was shifting from those label and publishing deals to a streaming world where 10 years ago there was 30,000 new songs a year fighting for radio time around that time there was about 30,000 new songs a day being uploaded to Spotify and Apple right and so that changed the dynamics of signing to a sports team signing to a label Two, well, have you generated traction yet? And the, it put the onus on the creatives to, to build a fan base, to start getting momentum and a spark at least, or a small flame on their career before a publisher or a label, really a label would sign them and take them to the next level. And as time went on, at one point, it was purported that there were 70,000 new songs a day being uploaded. Right now, I think the consensus is it's about 50,000 new songs a day are being uploaded to Spotify alone, right? 50,000 new songs a day compared to 30,000 a year. So those individuals have to record, write, record, and then promote and have that music somehow discovered. And the bar has changed to a level where to get a label to pay attention to you, you've got to have that music somewhat discovered. You have to have traction. And so Sound Royalties comes into the scene and says to these independent artists and signed artists alike, hey, do you want to finance your career? Do you want to finance uh, equipment? Do you want to finance your life? We can help you with that. And that shift in the industry and then the birth of Sound Royalties and a new approach to providing funded creatives kind of came to the scene at the same time. And there was a a much greater need than ever before for creatives to have ownership in something, finance it and leverage it before they struck these publishing and labels deals and and, and, uh, went to the next level. At the same time, we started out and were servicing those that were already successful. And so the two together uh, were what created the need and, and then the business model of sound royalties. So does it does it look like somebody who's like, okay, I know my music is good, but I haven't been signed yet, and I have to build an audience now? That's one category. It's like, let me use this financing yeah. either to complete the recording or the assets that go with building an audience, um, 
something like that on the one end. And then on the other end, somebody who's already had success, maybe in the label system, maybe they're done with their deal and they're like, I'm still going, but this next stuff that I'm going to write, I'm keeping it. I'm owning it. And there's a third. Oh, I'm in the label system and I have a label deal, but I want to own a piece of this. So I'm actually going to fund part of the creation of it, or I'm going to retain some of it, or I want to put more marketing behind it, you know, and I believe in these shows, you know, and I want to fund these shows because they're important to me. So, you know, a, a modern day label deal can include options to do things independently or with them or in partnering with that, that distributor label that you're working with. So there's, there's a lot more gray area. It's not just black and white. So that in-between area, are they, they're basically using their own financing, possibly sound royalties to negotiate the deal differently. Oh, 100%. Um, they're using their own funding and going to, to a publisher or label and saying, look, let's not talk about necessarily just how much you're going to put behind marketing this or how much of an advance you're going to give me. Let's talk about the creative services that you're going to provide. Let's talk about, do you offer tour support on the sound recording side or on the publishing side? Are you going to be pitching sync or not? Right. And so there's a lot of aspects behind the deal, much more important that have much greater importance than what kind of advance are you going to give me when I sign this deal? And we kind of take the focus away from that. It's super interesting because it, it, it kind of changes the le- where the leverage lives in the whole conversation. And I mean, there's so many things when you have a full re- kind of a traditional deal, it sort of feels like, well, whatever comes in, the label of the publisher yeah. gets the first cut at it. And if you say, well, actually, I'll take care of this portion, the touring or the sync or the radio promotion or something. And as a result, I want to retain uh, you know, a, high, a higher percentage of, of ownership and also maybe royalties before an advance gets recouped. And so you don't have this weird kind of situation where somebody's like, am I ever going to recoup? Am I ever going to like get some residual income yeah. off this? And, and so it's interesting. Is that, is that what you see people doing? I see, I see, we see a lot of that, but the, the conversations have changed. I mean, let's face it, publishers and labels create an enormous amount of value. But as we mentioned, you got to get to a certain level in order to have their focus and work with them and get the benefit of being able to work with them. But then as you're working with them, not everything you're doing, because it's there's 360 deals we've heard about, but take that same image and there's 360 uh, careers and so many different things that you're doing that you may with all these different partners that you're working with include into some things and maybe not in other things. And so the, the artist has become a lot smarter in terms of understanding who provides what and how do I manage my career to the, to the point and direction that I want it to be. All right. I'm going to get very specific here. Forgive me. What's the business model look like for both parties, for the artist and for sound royalties? I know our audience is probably wondering. So, so yeah. my... It's, it's easier than you think, you know, it's, it, it, it's as simple as saying, Hey, um, first, we'll work with any anybody as small as earning $5,000 a year in a royalty stream. Why do we limit it there? We want to help as many people as we can, but we do that because it's sort of like turning on the spigot in a house that the water's been off for a long time. You know, it, it's what, what happens when you first turn it on, it kind of sputters. sputters yeah. And that's the same. Yeah. That's the same thing with music royalties. So once they hit about $5,000 a year, so 400 and change a month, we can uh, often provide financing. 
but we also work with those that are, you know, earning tens of millions of dollars. So we work and everything in between. Um, and so the w- way it works is we look at the, those royalty income streams that they're collecting and the specific ones or all of them, and then come back to them with options that say, hey, look, you're a writer, you have performance income from this PRO, ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, SSM, or SOCAN, whatever that you've shared with us. You need eight bucks. And that's a hypothetical number that I'm going to throw at you just for illustration purposes. How about you pay us back that eight bucks in one year or five years? And they may say, you know what? I want to stretch it out over five years so I can keep more income. We'll say, okay, well, here's $8. Why don't you pay us $2 a year for five years? You hit $2 in any given year, you get the rest. So you keep an income stream. We're not going to pay, you make $100 in that one year or $100 million, we're not going to pay ourselves early. We're only going to work with the $2 and you get the rest. And then we're not going to ask you for a personal guarantee. We're not going to put your copyright at risk because even if those royalties don't pay out, we're not taking the copyright. We'll take the risk that over the five years, it'll pay us that $10. And if it doesn't, we're taking the risk that we may be waiting a long time to collect that simple $10 and there's no late fees, no penalty interest or penalty fees. We don't even charge an interest. It's a fixed dollar amount for a fixed period of time. And the transaction is as simple as that. It, it really is just a fixed dollar amount of financing for, for a fixed dollar amount for a fixed period of time. That does sound kind of simple. <laughs> All a right. lot of words to get to it, but I wanted to picture people to be able to picture it. Yeah, it's great. All right. Look, we're going to take a quick break and we come back, Alex. I want to ask you a bit about what is this emerging trend where people are retaining copyrights? We'll be right back. Shaley here. Join me online April 5th, 2023 for Meet the Innovators of NAM, a free online event. Whether you're going to NAM or not, find out where the innovation is happening in music gear. Get sneak peek demos of five of the most innovative music making tools and toys from Innovate at NAM and the MIDI Association Innovation Awards finalists. That's April 5th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. UK time. Register for free and learn about our next seismic activity online events at musictectonics.com. See you there. Now back to the show. Okay, we are back. And as I mentioned just before the break, I I was curious, is there a larger trend emerging where artists are retaining their copyrights? And why is that? If so, why is that happening now? And where is it going to go next? There is a larger trend where creatives are retaining their copyright. And where that's coming from, it's, it's been going on a long time. So 30 years ago, we transitioned, it was about 30 years ago, on a publishing deal to 100% publisher deal. You used to be you write some songs, you sign a publisher deal, you wouldn't see any of that. It went to the publisher, right? Then you started to see co-pub deals. Then in the coming years, you know, you started to see a lot more administration deals where you weren't taking the creative services. You just wanted to administer your royalties. And the same, similar things happened, uh, you know, over the past decade, you saw a lot more distribution deals rather than a full label deals. So distribution deals have become prominent on the sound recording side. Streaming has put a spotlight that ownership is king, but it's also enabled creatives to have ownership. So one, they know and can see the value of ownership. 
And two, they're able to retain ownership because they've negotiated it, because it became more sense, because they've funded more of their careers as they've gone along. And, and so all that together creates this, you know, increased interest and increased um, uh, situation where creatives are retaining their copyrights more and more. Got it. Got it. So I think it'll be fun to talk about some examples of artists that sound royalties have helped. I think it just puts a little more color on the whole conversation. Do you have a few maybe you could share? Maybe maybe start with one? Sure. Um, you know, an interesting one that's a, that's a great friend and, and, and a artist I truly admire is Sonia Lee. She's a performing songwriter that uh, basically utilized sound royalties when her tour got canceled during COVID, you know, at the onset of COVID, I'll never forget March of uh, 20 and into April, I talked to so many creatives. They're like, you know, one, one gentleman I was talking to on the phone, he's like, I just lost $6 million in touring and they've canceled all my shows from now it was the end of March till the beginning of May. Little did he, little did I know how far it was going to go and, and, and how far out. So we did a COVID relief fund. It was a $20 million pledged a COVID relief fund to creatives of no cost funding and financing. Wow. And Sonia Lee uh, was one of the creatives that stepped up uh, because her tour got canceled. Um, you know, many performing writers and up and coming artists depend on touring to fund their career as they get that hit or, you know, go to the next level. I'm pleased to say that she, she got funding from us, has, has given us rave reviews and She's got more projects than ever being released right now. So she was able to sustain the storm, so to speak. Nice. Uh, well, tell us about another artist that you guys have worked with. Um, I've got two others to mind. Let's see. Why Clef Jean? I heard of him. I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, he turned to sound royalties in a, in, when his publishing company, Carnival World Music Group, was expanding. And he really wanted to take it into sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. You know, there were so many... Uh, writers there that weren't able to get a publishing deal. They didn't sign anything and they weren't getting paid or they signed something from some, you know, shady company down there and still weren't getting paid. And so he, he turned to us and, and he said to me, he's like, you know, I, I want to take Carnival World pub Publishing to Sub-Saharan Africa and sign something that's real and give them a real opportunity to earn from their trade. And I'm pleased to say that that is still thriving and, and, and growing today, that business. Um, bravo to Wyclef on that. So it wasn't a single artist in his case. It was it was actually, he was using it for multiple artists? He was using it to fund his company uh, and, and, and into a new region of the world. That's cool. That's cool. And have you heard from him about what the impact has been in terms of, I know he's signed artists or, or what's come out of those? He's signing things? writers. So publishing Carnival World Music Group it. is and, and signs songwriters in sub-Saharan Africa. He has another entity that uh, does uh, artists and, you know, he's a great businessman and really smart. And yeah, we, we talk, connect regularly and uh, he's doing amazing things. So, you know, I, I share with you an artist, a, a performing songwriter artist. Then I showed you how an individual happens to be an artist, mm -hmm. used it to help a publishing company grow. Um, yeah, what's let's talk about tour let's let's talk about touring mm -hmm. um so alejandra guzman is a mexican rock star who used our newly developed tour financing program to get up front capital to launch her 
Prismas tour, and I hope I'm saying that right, I'm not sure, um, to fund the tour production. Wow. Let's face it, nobody was touring, nobody was doing shows and making money. And then all of a sudden when the doors opened again, it takes a lot of money to get production and to get a tour on the road. Um, so she turned us um, for our tour finance program and many of those dates uh, in 22 ended up being sold out. So it was, it was a success huge success for everybody involved. I love all the different types of examples because I, I, I think it really does paint a picture that there's not a single kind of use case or solution that you're providing. Um, it, it, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. And it, it's just helpful, you know, as I started like, oh, you're sitting next to somebody you've never met before. How do you explain it? But then as you talk about how it's actually getting used, it really does kind of fill in the, the holes. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it makes me want to know like, What's the long-term impact of this type of financing in the music industry? You gave us three very different examples for three artists slash businesses, mm -hmm. but what, what's going to yeah. change in the, in, you know, if this continues to, to be a thing, you know, people are less dependent on um, a particular type of deal with publishers or, or labels, there's something that's going to shift. What will change and how's it going to impact fans ultimately? You know, I'm more focused on how it's going to impact the creatives, and, and that's why we started in the first place, and, and we're already seeing that impact. We pioneered a, a model that, you know, friends that are still friends to this day that are in the business side of this industry said, hey, Alex, it'll never work because there's not enough deal volume. Well, the impact we're seeing is there is significant deal volume. We grew 90% year over year last year, but there's other companies stepping up and starting to you know, copy the model and do the same thing with which if it's the same model where the creatives keep the copyrights and it's fair funding, it creates the competition that's good for the creatives. And that's awesome. More companies aside from that are allowing creatives to keep ownership, more just labels and, uh, and publisher and distribution deals show more and more ownership for the for the creatives. We're seeing fractionalized catalog sales, which were something that were unheard of in the past, where don't sell it all, you can keep a piece of it. We're also seeing term specific deals where it's like, just sell five years, just sell 10 years. And all that came on the heels of, uh, of this new financing type approach and the industry keeps to cha changing. I think the most important one that we're gonna continue to see and that will impact the fans even as well, is we're seeing that the creatives are more knowledgeable about the value of their copyrights uh, and able to do more. And so that does two things. It helps the global superstars do more and bring more that the fans love, but it also allows the regional superstars and those that used to, they could only do a few shows and do touring to make some money, now broaden how they make money and, and reach a, a larger fan base, whether it be regional or not. I mean, it's interesting in your examples, you talked about quite a bit of global uh, territory coverage, you know, between, uh, you know, launching launching a, a business in sub-Saharan Africa to, uh, you know, uh, a rock star from Mexico and so forth. It seems like there's a potential to unlock global creativity as a result of this, too, where maybe maybe in a previous era, it was very deal specific around regions. So I'm interested in that. I also think I could see where over time, I mean, we hear a lot of stories about where, when certain artists feel kind of locked in by who they've done deals with. Um, and, 
there's a very transactional component to it where that comes before the creativity. And so when you give the power back to the creator, you have the opportunity to unlock some creativity, which could impact fans in the sense that new genres could emerge or new, oh, yeah. new mashups or all that kind of stuff too. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we're already seeing it, right? If you look at the industry shift and you talked about this early, the impact of streaming and, and, and sort of like the shift towards more independent artists as well. well. They may they may be on independent labels or they may be without labels. They might be distributing directly themselves and so forth. You're seeing like a lot more diversity in the types of sounds that are getting out there. Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, we've got 328 million people in the United States and we were predominantly funding the music industry. And that's why it was American artists that were dominant around the world. There's 711 million people in Latin America, and they were second really to start streaming. And as money started to flow from those areas, we started to see these Latin superstars come out of nowhere and, and surpass, you know, in terms of tour revenue and streaming revenue, uh, most American artists, right? And that's expanding around the world now. Um, BTS. I mean, look at look at look at BTS in Asia. Uh, I always look to P Dog, a uh, producer and writer. His performance uh, royalties, just his writer's performance royalties, were thirty-two million dollars for the first half of um, last year, I believe it was. Wow. I mean, the numbers are astronomical, but it also is enabling a worldwide music uh, hotbed to grow. Awesome. All right. I want to find out what's happening with sound royalties, but I have to take a quick break. Next, I'll ask you about the future. We'll be right back. Eleanor here. You know that Music Tectonics is made by the music innovation PR firm Rock Paper Scissors, but we rarely get to talk about our work on the show. That changes now. Tristra and I staged a Rock Paper Scissors takeover. We took off the music tectonics hats and put on our rock, paper, scissor hats to share what we've learned over years of helping innovators in artificial intelligence speak human and earn great media coverage. Look for that episode wherever you get your podcasts and find bonus content on the RPS website. That is at rockpaperscissors.biz. That's B-I-Z. Look for downloads on the resources page. Just give us your email address and we'll send you our full conversation on Speak Human for AI Innovators. We'll send it to you as an audio file and as a transcript. All right, we're back. Alex, I'm curious, where do you see sound royalties going next? Uh, we're expanding in a couple areas, right? We've got, we talked about the tour financing and, and you know, when I, we started, we were only working with writer share performance writer share from BMI and ASCAP. And then it grew into, you know, uh, CSAC, and then we grew into publishing and then sound recording. Right now we work with 130 different publishers, PROs, labels, distributors, in terms of funding the creatives that are, are working through them. And, and so that's gonna continue to grow, including touring. On top of that, like we were mentioning earlier before the break is the global expansion. We are expanding globally. We know we, we've got boots on the ground and expanding in Latin America, Canada. We had an announcement recently about our expansion there, Europe, and more to come. So as the industry becomes more global, we're becoming global. When you mentioned the PROs and the publishers and the distributors, are you saying that they're partners in financing to those artists? How does that work? So 
we are working with their writers and in order to work with their writers in terms of PROs, as you mentioned, we work with the ASCAPs and the BMIs of the world to uh, get acknowledgements and protect the advance that we're doing Got and it. service their clients and also enable them not to have to give an advance to their client, right? When did you go to your publisher typically if you're a writer for an advance? You hesitated unless your, door, your deal was up, right? You either recouped or, and your deal was coming up, otherwise you didn't see them in the middle. Now you can pick up the phone and say, I'm with Warner, I'm with Sony, but Sound Royalties, hey, I'm three months into this deal, but I actually need some funding and financing. Can I still work with you? Yes, they don't have to go to that publisher, PRO or label in the middle or at any time for an advance. They can go to them for what expertise that company provides to them. Got it, got it. It's cool to hear about how those partnerships will lead to more opportunities for creators and of course the, the the global expansion too. So I love the creativity, even though you're just a finance guy. <laughs> I know you're not. I'm a music I know finance you're not. guy. <laughs> the creativity of sort of thinking through like all the pathways of how you can unlock creativity by providing this finance uh, to creative people. It's time to widen out, Alex. It's time for us to get sci-fi. <laughs> Hey, uh, I know that's crazy, but um, imagine the music industry in 20 years. What do you see? I like to push our guests to go a little bit, a little bit more future focused, a little bit more crazy for this one. So what do you got? I mean, back up to how the music industry really started to evolve. 1851, two guys in France at a cafe having tea for 25 cents. It all of a sudden, the, the bill goes to 50 cents because their music's playing by a band. They sued and got performance rights. 1909, Supreme Court started paying uh, mechanicals because they, before that, piano rolls were not considered sheet music and there wasn't uh, payment being made. Jumped to almost 2000, 1998, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act helped control access, right? So we're seeing as we go to a digital world, the consumption of the music is being controlled better and I'll see 20 years from now, there'll be less black box money, less undistributed money, because in a streaming and digital world, you can legitimize the consumption of music, and you are. You don't have to pay for music if you're here or in Sub-Saharan Africa or anywhere. You can listen to ads. And so people are doing that, and we're seeing money flow from different areas we never saw before, right? So I see the less black box money, less undistributed money, through the legitimization of the consumption of the music. I also see activity bit music taking off 20 years from now. You know, it used to be you listened in the radio and drive time and to work and maybe at the gym and in a restaurant or something. Now you're surrounded by music all the time. There's study-based music, there's sleep-based music. And so that's becoming a big business in the music side as well. Um, and then we talked about regional superstars, more regional superstars rather than global-based superstars. Um, people can support their, their producer or writer or artist that they like in their region, and that creative can make money. So I, I see, you know, on the creative side, things expanding. I see the types of music changing. It's all on how we're going to consume the music. And I see as we go digital, the consumption of the music is being legitimized. So we'll see a lot more uh, less black box money and, and more flow through to the creative. 
That's very hopeful. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, because in a sense, what you're saying is everyone's sort of talking about sort of like the streaming services in the West starting to plateau. There's still some growth in other areas. But what I'm really hearing yeah. you saying is the growth's not over yet, that there's going to be even more opportunities. And the other piece, I, I guess, of that is that traditionally, or, or more recently, I should say, I shouldn't say traditionally, nothing's traditional anymore. Like there's, there are no, (laughs) there's no traditions. Like, but I was referring to like, uh, it feels like the music industry has relied heavily on streaming subscription revenue and you're, and you right out of the gate, you're like, people are listening with more ads, more places. And, uh, it sounds like you have hope for, for that as a growth area as well. Well, that's why we're seeing such massive, uh, multiples. You know, you talk about a 20 multiple or 30 multiple or 17 multiple. I'm sorry, investors aren't going to wait 17 years just to collect their principal, let alone interest. They see on the business side, just like I see, this wave of money coming from this global consumption of music. There's more ways to tap into the value of music than ever before. There's more platforms. We're seeing money from Facebook and TikTok and all these platforms that are now licensing the music. There's all this gaming music. And not only do you now play a game, but there's music playing in the background and people are getting paid for that. So there's a wall of money that just keeps growing and growing. You know, you can always find a statistician to focus on one metric and say, this is plateauing. Great. You see this plateauing in the United States? Well, what about in Korea where we're seeing a huge uptick in money that we never saw before? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's I I love to hear that perspective. I remember Mark Mulligan from Media Research did our first keynote at the 2019 Music Tectonics, and he talked about people you know, there's always, there, at some point there's a crisscross when you compare one format or, or one listening uh, medium versus another. And people are like, yeah. oh, radio is tanking, radio is tanking. Well, it's tanking, but it's still higher. You know, at that point he was like, it's yeah. tanking, but it's, there's still more people listening to music on radio than streaming services back then. I don't know if it's still the same, but you, yeah, it depends where, where you're setting your focus, like you said. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the doom and gloom or you can really see that the revenues are are at all times high and continue to grow. The overall, yes, maybe this specific source of income or region is not what it used is not continuing to grow, but overall it's growing. Hey, Alex, it's been, it's been amazing to get your perspective. We haven't had a lot of finance guys that speak quite like you. Um, one thing before you go, though, one of the things we do here in the Music Tectonics community is try to build our network, help everybody who's listening to the podcast or come to our online events or our conference, whatever, connect with somebody else. And I'm sure you'll, you'll hear from some folks that will connect with you, too. But who are some thought leaders or startups that maybe we haven't heard of yet that we should be following or, or ones that you're fans of anyway? Startups? Um we should write sometime. We should write sometime. It's kind of a cross between LinkedIn and eHarmony. It was created by Richard Casper, um, uh, a vet and uh, Kevin McCarty. And it's basically, I'm in Nashville. I want to know who the other writers are, or, you know what, I'm going next month to LA. Who are some writers? Can I see their stuff? And, and, and then swipe right or left that, yeah, I'd like to write with them. Do they want to write with me? And it kind of puts people together and then it expands into split sheets and other things. Oh, wow. Really cool startup that I, I think helps creatives do things in a new way in a digital age. Um, cool. I like another it. one. Yeah, it's different. It's it, and, 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 and it adds value in, in a great way and something that isn't being surfaced hmm. uh, that I'm aware of. 
Nice. Um, another one would be Backline. They're a nonprofit organization that provides mental health resources to mm. musicians and their families. Um, it came on the heels of, of Neil Castle's uh, suicide a few years ago. Um, they're doing great things for the music community, especially live music and touring musicians that had a rough time over the past few years. They'll put you into, you know, connect you with uh, service providers, help pay for those service providers. They have groups. So there's group therapy and, you know, they really are helping um, creatives fight something that's real, real for most people. You know, mental health is 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 an important topic. Well, Alex, I feel like we're really getting a sense of where where you come from and how you approach this, um, just by hearing some of those recommendations. Too, um, it really sounds like even on the finance side, your concern is helping artists, and those those shout outs really are, are emblematic of that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I think put out positivity, radiate positivity, help, and. Maybe it'll have meaning for your life and, and, and make a difference. Amazing. Alex, thanks so much for being on Music Tectonics. Thank you. Appreciate it. Love, love being here. Hope to connect again soon. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye! You're listening to Music Tectonics.